This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? As the first chapter of Genesis beautifully illustrates, the scriptural deity makes all things in scripture functional. One aspect that tends to be overlooked is his express control over progeny. Thus far, we have witnessed God opening and closing wombs at will and using circumcision as his trademark sign of his control over the course of Abraham's seed. The patriarchal figures are emasculated by God to the extent that their quote-unquote progeny do not actually come from themselves, but as express gifts from God. In other words, it is God who provides the seed, not the human males. We tend to miss this pattern, perhaps, in an effort to keep Jesus' virgin birth unique, but this totally misses the point. The power of Jesus' conception and birth in Matthew and Luke's Gospels is the fact that Jesus' virgin birth is not unique, but within a consistent pattern already found in the Old Testament. So let us hear the story and let us be attentive. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So it's important to understand that the difference in the terminology surrounding Isaac's conception is really, really important to to see. For one, there is an absence of the trademark euphemisms for sexual intercourse. Uh, Sometimes the Bible will say something to the effect of so-and-so went into so-and-so or X character knew Y character. Uh, But in this instance, it's not there. Instead, the text says that God did to Sarah what he had promised her. It's very clear from that text that it is God doing the action, not Abraham. Again, there's a, there's a lot of setup to this that I don't want the listeners to miss. When you view the name change of Abram to Abraham and the imposition of circumcision as precursors to this event, 
it becomes quite epic, really. Isaac's conception is in contrast to Ishmael's conception, which was the result of Abraham's work and not God's. The language is different. Paul himself appears to be aware of this in his letter to the Galatians. In chapter 4, he calls Ishmael a son of Abraham according to the flesh, meaning that he is Abraham's literal offspring. On the other hand, he calls Isaac the son of Abraham according to the promise, meaning that he is not of the flesh, but of God's word to Abraham. He's a gift, and in that sense, he's adopted by Abraham. This is employed by Paul to criticize the Jerusalemites who rallied under the banner of being children of Abraham through Isaac. The irony, though, is that Isaac wasn't even a literal son of Abraham, so that invalidates the Jerusalemites and their entire argument. And it, you know, they're, it's putting them on equal footing with the Gentiles, and it's extremely powerful. And in light of what you just said, I want to revisit something you mentioned in the intro to this episode as I believe it shines light on a much more deeply rooted issue in Christianity. What I'm referring to, of course, is people disregarding Isaac's apparent virgin birth because it makes Jesus less unique. This tendency to ignore or subjugate biblical stories, especially in the Old Testament, and their themes in order to make Jesus our one-of-a-kind special unique hero savior is extremely dangerous. The obsession with Jesus is our hero, totally undermines the biblical message, and by extension, Jesus' message. There are numerous stories in the New Testament that purposefully subvert this tendency of ours. When Jesus performs miracles for the benefit of others, he doesn't tell people to be quiet because he's just so humble, a very nice, humble superhero. He does it because the glory doesn't belong to him. The glory belongs to his Father. And this is something Jesus himself says repeatedly. So when we forget that teaching and elevate the person of Jesus in the New Testament to hero status, we are forsaking his instruction and the overall biblical instruction. We do this with a virgin birth. When a virgin birth is described in the book of Isaiah, some Christians actually get angry if you assert that the virgin birth mentioned is anything other than a prediction of Jesus' birth, a character that didn't exist in the literature or in the minds of the authors. It's ridiculous. Like Blaze said, The birth that is totally functional under God's asa, or doing, and doesn't include the male human actor, is a biblical sign. It's present in this story, and it is functional, so that we may understand what we are being taught about God and our reality. So we previously discussed the name Isaac as meaning he laughed in Hebrew, so there's no need to go over that in detail again. But what is interesting is that in this chapter, we get a series of repetitions of characters laughing around Isaac. This becomes an interesting motif, which we will get into as the episode progresses. This motif begins with Sarah addressing the laughter as if she sees the joke of the situation. Her question, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, is exactly that. God is making fun of of Abraham and Sarah for their continued disbelief. But the promised son is now here as the ultimate punchline. Appropriately, because this is well-written literature, Hagar and Ishmael make their next appearance with this divine birth because their subjugated treatment is, if you will, the ugly side of this joke. Let's hear what happens. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. 
So she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah tells you to do, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So this section is really interesting when we take into account Sarah's words at the birth of Isaac. God has made laughter for her. Well, you know, laughing is a complex emotion, and the authors are employing this complexity in a very striking way. When someone laughs, it can be out of joy, humor, surprise, or in a mocking sense. And this latter one, this is how Sarah interprets Ishmael's laughing. The text doesn't give us any other clues as to what kind of emotion was behind this, but she certainly takes it to be in a mocking fashion. The ESV does a good job at keeping the same word here. Some translations actually outright say that Ishmael was mocking the boy, which is incorrect. The verb in question simply means to laugh. There are many ways that this could, could go in a literary sense, but you can't apply any more than that in, in your translation. So Sarah's jealousy gets the better of her, and she demands the expulsion of Hagar the Egyptian and her son away from the household of Abraham. The terminology and events are a striking parallel to the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt, though in that case, of course, the roles are reversed. Abraham's displeasure is also notable here. As I said in the last episode, Abraham's dealings with Abimelech were the last vestiges, so to speak, of his old self, that is, Abram. He is gradually working towards his full character actualization, which will be completely realized in the next chapter, but here it's clear that he is embodying the moniker of the father of many nations because of his concern for Hagar, literally the sojourner in Hebrew. But God comes to him and tells him to send Hagar and Ishmael out anyway. The reason is simple. Ishmael is not the son of God's divine providence. Isaac is. That doesn't mean that God won't still care for the boy, as it's obvious later on that he does. It only means that Isaac and Ishmael have different roles and functions, as does Sarah, despite her ill-treatment of the outsider. We talked in one of the previous episodes that the Hebrew word Sarah comes from the same root that Israel comes from. Knowing this is incredibly illuminating because it foreshadows the sinful behavior of the Israelites primarily against the sojourner and the outsider and the lowest among them. It's also important to note that Hagar wanders in the wilderness at Beersheba, Beersheba is actually quite an important place later on in this chapter, but simply put, the name means well of oath. We will later see Abraham and Abimelech make an oath there. And with Abimelech as the alophilos, the one of another kind, Beersheba marks the spot of peace and reconciliation 
with the Hebrew and the outsider. It's very impressive. Yeah, the phrase Beersheba means well of an oath, but that word Sheba is also the word that we get Shabbat from, the Sabbath, and Shabbat as in the seventh day of the week that marks rest from labor. And it's probably also related to the Hebrew Saba, which is spelled exactly the same except for the different S at the beginning. Uh, and Saba means satiated or satisfied. So it's a really interesting name because all these words from Shabbat are connected. So Hagar goes out into the wilderness, which is dangerous, but it is the wilderness of the region, the well of Shabbat. So it seems to be that she is not walking toward the death of a desert wilderness, which is what we might think, but in and through this valley of death, if I may co-opt the phrase, she will find Shabbat in all of its varied meanings. There are another couple of things I want to touch on from the previous passage. I agree with everything you said, Blaze, uh, but there are a couple of key points I want to bring up. For one, something that often gets brushed over here is God's consistent usurping of power from those traditionally in power. Don't mishear me. He doesn't give power to the weak. He takes power from anyone who has power. Abraham would traditionally be the one with the power in the household since this story is taking place in and was written in a patriarchal society. So if he didn't want to kick out his slave woman and their son, he didn't have to. It doesn't matter what his wife says. He has the power in this household and he can do whatever he wants. Except he can't because he is under God's authority, which means he must submit to his neighbor, which is everyone, especially his wife, even to those who are under him in the pecking order. It's like Abimelech in the previous chapter. Abraham is the stranger and he brings sin to Abimelech's house. But as soon as Abimelech has received God's instruction, he is not allowed to do as he pleases with Abraham. He must listen to God and submit to whoever would issue a demand to him, regardless of who they are. Likewise, Abraham in this chapter is bossed around by Sarah, his wife, and even though he wholeheartedly disagrees with her, God commands him to listen to her. And the text is explicit. You can't confuse the intention. It doesn't say, do as she says this one time. It says, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. And that comes with the assuredness from God to Abraham that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Because just like Sarah was acting childish by kicking out uh, Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham is acting childish in light of God's provision. He isn't really concerned about Hagar and Ishmael's well-being, and you can hear that in God's reassurance that Abraham's offspring will be preserved through Isaac. Abraham is clearly concerned about what it means for his progeny, for Ishmael to be removed from his household, what it means for his dynasty, his wealth. So I can't help but hear God's dialogue as being a bit sarcastic. He says, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Like, yes, Abraham, duh. That was the promise back in chapter 13, that if the dust of the earth could be counted, so will your offspring be. Which means that just like Noah and just like Adam, Abraham will functionally, according to the text, be the father of every human being. Because according to the metaphor, every granule of dust is a human person. And if they could all be counted, they would all be Abraham's offspring, according to God's promise. That's the comedy of chapter 21. For one, Abraham doesn't know what that means, but... He seems to keep forgetting it altogether, and he keeps dwelling on this fear of losing his grip on the world through his sons. But God already told him that his offspring will effectively be everyone for the remainder of human existence. It's like a child acting like it's the end of the world when you take away their favorite toy. They are a child, and their priorities are not in the right place. 
This is likely the inciting motivator for Abraham's correct behavior in the next chapter. He is not a perfect character, but he is a character that learns, and we see it happening right in front of our eyes, but we have to look. We can't gloss over the details. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This interaction between Hagar and God has some striking literary features. The distance of Ishmael being a bowshot away is a foreboding one, especially coupled with the statement at the end that he became an expert in the bow. This also ties into his twelve sons being princes. It's Cain's line all over again. The similarities are lucid, especially when one takes into account Eve's possessive reaction to Cain's birth and the forcing of Ishmael's birth via the actions of Abraham and Sarah. Again, the text repeats itself. Right? This is a point that we've been making uh, since day one, and you see how these situations in the early chapters of Genesis uh, just continue within different meshalim, different examples, different stories. But again, it all goes back to those first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis. That's why they're so important. But the situation in Ishmael and Paran is another link to the Exodus narrative, because again, these these uh, stories are all intertwined. All the stories of the Bible are intertwined to each other, and one leads into the next. And in that story, in Exodus, the Israelites, of course, spend 40 years in that same wilderness of Paran. And whereas the 12 tribes of Israel were called to be shepherding tribes, they eventually go the way of Cain and Ishmael, by extension, and become a kingdom. We see this happening to Ishmael as he begins his wandering in the desert only to take a wife from Egypt, which of course is the place of bondage, and he begets mighty princes in Arabia. Again, this is not a good thing, and the text is making it clear. Still, during all of this, God never leaves Ishmael, which is a very important key. Even though Isaac and his line are chosen in this narrative, they end up not acting any different than Ishmael, and God is still with them too. It all goes back to the consistent teaching we get in the following book of Exodus, that God is the one who hears the affliction of the weak, whether they be Israelites or Egyptians, in the case of Hagar and Ishmael. God is without favoritism, despite the function of his characters. He is Elohim, the universal God. Yeah, I think the mention of the lifestyle that Ishmael assumes has to be taken at its literary and functional value. I think the tendency with a story such as this is to hear the text and think of Ishmael and his mother as the outsider, which they were and are in the story, but not the scriptural outsider who was cursed by the ones who should know better. Instead, we think of them precisely the same way that Sarah does. 
we think of them as insubordinate to the inner circle of biblical characters. Yes, Ishmael's fathering princes and living a lifestyle similar to the antagonistic Cain is not good news, but it doesn't have any bearing on his value as a human being in the story, and we have to remember that. These two characters are not just cannon fodder that miss out on God's promises uh, that are exclusive to the characters in the story whom we happen to like better. It's quite the contrary. As Blaise said, according to the text, the boy grew and God was with the boy. It's a wonderful image. They are not the characters that we would expect God to be with, but nevertheless, God is with them. And if that seems off to us, we need to check ourselves. And lastly, before I pass it back to Blaze, I want to point out that after the text makes it clear that God is with Ishmael, it likewise goes through the effort of establishing a specific detail in which it says exactly where Ishmael was living. Not just any region, but in the Midbar, the wilderness. It's wonderful. God is with this one, and although his lifestyle and progeny reflect the negative character Cain, he is still scripturally sufficient according to these details. This apparent contradiction is for us to remember that just based on how someone or some people look or what they do, we cannot pass judgment because for all we know, God is with them, maybe more so than he is with us. The admonition of self-righteousness is sprinkled throughout every scriptural story if you look closely enough. One last note on this section, which is tied into the next, is the meaning of the word paran, the wilderness area in which Ishmael dwells. This comes from the same Hebrew root as the word for a tree branch. Trees are obviously highly symbolic in the Middle East and in the broader biblical literature. I'll hold off on its precise function until we read the rest of the chapter, because something really interesting occurs between Abraham and Abimelech. So let's hear the story. At that time, Abimelech and Fecal, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Ab Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave it to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So in this section, we hear about the peace treaty between Abraham and Abimelech, which is really impressive because when we take into account the Philistines as being the Alophili, it is as if 
Abraham is making peace with all of the Gentiles. And I want to stay on this point for just a second because I just uh, was reminded recently, after listening to uh, some of Father Paul's commentaries, that the word Philistine in Hebrew, uh, Peleshet, uh, comes from the root palash, which means to spread out or to roll or to scatter. Again, you get the image of the uh, of the Greeks coming from the islands, spreading out to you know land that isn't theirs, and and spreading their influence, their Greek Hellenization, around uh, the uh, Levant in the Middle East. So you get that image with both of those words from Peleshet and from Alifili. Yeah, I think in a way that we can apply the functional title of Hayibri, the Hebrew. Uh, we can apply it to different characters, people groups, depending upon their function in the story. I think the Philistines or Alephilos is like the quintessential Gentile. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, of course, you can see it very strongly in the Septuagint, but this is important. Abraham single-handedly solved the seemingly endless conflict that will plague both the descendants of himself and Abimelech in the coming centuries, right, in the scriptural narrative. I'm not talking about history, I'm talking about the narrative. The sign of this covenant is a gift of seven ewe lambs, and a well is dug there. Beersheba then refers to the well of that oath, even though it literally means, as Rowdy said earlier, the well of seven. Remember again that that seven, you know, it's a sign of the Sabbath rest. It's also a sign of completion, so it's a completion of the conflict between these two men. To make this even more striking is that Abraham not only makes this covenant with Abimelech, but with a figure named Phicol, uh, who is the commander of Abimelech's army. His name in Hebrew means the voice of all. So the text is taking every step to make us realize the gravity of the situation. Abraham is not just making peace with one king and his military commander. He's making peace with all the Gentiles. This is critical to Abraham's character development. In chapter 15, he was displeased with the prospect of this outsider servant of his, Eleazar, taking his inheritance. Now, as the father of many nations, he is making peace with the Gentile. That is truly impressive. To cement this oath, Abraham plants an eshel, which is translated as a tamarisk tree in many of the translations. Tamarisk, of course, gets its name from the word tamar in Hebrew, which refers to a palm tree. Yes, this is the same name as the biblical character Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, who becomes a prominent figure in this genealogical line. The planting of this tree, in conjunction with Ishmael inhabiting the land of the tree branch, that is Paran, I feel is no coincidence. The tree and the well, of course, are symbolic of the oasis, calling us back to the Garden of Eden. Ishmael merely inhabits a branch of this tree, but he is not the tree himself, since it is through his brother that the seed of God's promise will be realized eventually in the person of God's Messiah. But again, there are many branches to this tree, so you have to, you have to allow that, that type of room. You know, the, the promise extends out to all the nations and not just the one that goes through 
Isaac specifically. Amen. It's almost like the New Testament writers knew the Old Testament. And I say that jokingly, of course, but we take this fact for granted. The New Testament can only be understood through the Old Testament. And unfortunately, the church fathers, as well as modern Christian leaders and scholars, still struggle to accept this fact. When one reads the New Testament without the illumination of the Old Testament, the ambiguity surrounding several key details and themes can only lead to a vast array of interpretations, philosophies, theologies, conspiracies, and religions. That disunity is the real history of the church, especially in the last few hundred years. The Old Testament is not an inferior book written by intellectually inferior people. You know, people often get it backwards. They read the New Testament and say that it shines light on all the Old Testament story. But it's the other way around. The Old Testament is the text that the New Testament submits to. And we have to follow suit, else we veer off the path. This is the way. See you next week. And he shall